Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, watching you through Largo's Creeper window. I can just hear that uh, funky jazz music playing in the background. It's uh, it's creepy. It's creepy. Yep. And I'm feeling a bit bloated right now, sort of laden with free radicals, I think. And <laughs> so we had to find someone who could purge us of these free radicals. And so I I sought out the man who promises gratuitous sex and violence at all times. It is editor-in-chief of Fangoria, Mr. Phil Nobile Jr. Hello, Phil. How are you? Hello. Hello. I'm well. What a great introduction that was. I'll try to live up to it. Well, you know, hopefully there's no herbal enemas in this episode. <laughs> um, We're just going to be speaking in, in Never Say Never Again code this whole hour. It's all puns. I don't have the script memorized. All right. All right I'll do my best. I, I've actually seen this film in the cinema this year, so I have had my fill of this film. <laughs> but before we get there, I'm sure everyone knows who you are. <laughs> but for the one person listening who doesn't know who you are, Take us back a little bit, because I was looking at your, your, your Twitter bio, and apart from, you know, editor-in-chief at Fangoria, it says, aged Bond fan. Yes. So, where did your love of Bond start? Well, I think my story is like most of, a, of my generation's story about Bond. It was, it was an indoctrination through my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can always remember seeing sort of the dog-eared paperbacks on the shelves at home, and we... Uh, you know, my, my dad was not a movie watcher per se. He liked what he liked, but uh, a lot of times it was very much us dragging him to the theater, but Bond was the one thing that he was sort of excited about to take us to the theater to see. So, um, you know, I'm talking drive-ins in the 70s. I'm talking, you know, the Sunday night movie in America it was a, a big thing, but I very distinctly remember seeing both 1983 entries in, in the cinema uh, as a kid. So this film, this, there, there's no, there's no uh, separation here for me in this film. Like these were all Bond movies. And I mean, I guess this is a conversation we're going to get into later, but uh, it, it was my dad's thing. And uh, as I aged up and out of Bond, you know, I, I fell away from it. But like, like a lot of folks, I think uh, the, the Daniel Craig era sort of brought me back to it and, and sort of kicked the whole thing in the ass and, and got me sort of paying attention again. Yeah, interestingly, I was listening to you on another podcast today, and you mentioned that you sort of skipped the Brosnan era, which for me was the thing that brought me into it. So it's it's nice that different eras have brought different people to the game. Yeah, well, I think it's very it's very much a generational thing. And um, when I'm assuming you were about twelve when Brosnan hit, maybe younger. <laughs> Ouch. No. Ouch. I was uh, I was eight. You were eight, so that's perfect. That's adorable. Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't maintain that anymore, apparently. <laughs> you were 12 within his tenure, let's say. Sure, that, that's true. That's true. There you go. All right. I was in my 20s, and I was just trying to get laid. I was not, you know, knocking around uh, the, the, the movie house to, to go see James Bond movies. They, my, my era was the 80s, so, you know, I came up with, with two Bonds back, I think. Yeah, and I kind of fell between where I... Roger Moore was my entry point for Bond, and I guess I would have been 
uh, about 15 when Goldeneye hit. But for me, like Roger Moore was the epitome of what James Bond meant to me. Nice. And then the other thing is I'm, I'm just a big movie nerd in general. So in the 90s, in my 20s, I was all the way up my own ass trying to just like absorb as much indie crime stuff as I could and auteur theory and all this other bullshit that I kind of gotten over in, in since. But, uh, it, you know, if, if you were like really, really into movies, you might as a, as a 20 year old in the 90s, you probably weren't really, really into Pierce Brosnan's Bond movies. How dare you? How dare you? Dying of the Day is the height of sophisticated cinema. David Lynch could learn a thing or two from that tsunami sequence. Now listen, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, uh, I, I contain multitudes, sir. So when you're ready to talk about Dying Another Day, I will defend it. Wow, defend it, nice. <laughs> yes, hit, hit me up. Speaking of films that may need defending, uh, I'm going to throw it to you, Cam. What are we talking about this week? Yes, we are tackling 1983's Never, 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 Never Say Never, 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 Never Again. Bang. <laughs> gold. Gold. Uncanny. Better than the actual version in, in the film, to be fair. Well, I got to give this movie a lot of points because when we've done these Bond reviews, I will typically try to think, uh, sing the theme songs, and some of them are well beyond my tone-deaf stylings, but Never Say Never... Right in that ballpark, right there. <laughs> Completely flat. <laughs> a line drive down the middle. That's right. <laughs> golden, golden. Well, I think before we read the synopsis, because I read the synopsis every week, but mm. I think when it comes to Bond films, most people know what we're talking about ahead of time and have probably seen the film, which we will get to. So I think first, let's talk about first experiences with the film. Now, Phil, you alluded to it earlier, but did you see this in theatres on release as a as a kid or i did um wow okay and what did you think about it back then well you know it was it was great it was because it was a james bond movie and i was 12 years old and, and it was it was rad um starlog that year put out a james bond cover and put octopus you never say never again right next to each other it was a dead heat it was it was a level playing field and i think that for a lot of folks and i think my dad included if sean connery is playing james bond you show up yeah. End of story. You know, whatever whatever the hell's going on with that Herb Alpert title song. You know, this is still a, a James Bond movie. And and I think in our heads, because we were just suburban, you know, blue collar people who didn't follow the industry, it was we didn't know the, the, the whole battle and the Kevin McClory of it all. It was just I guess there's two James Bond movies this year. <laughs> and we and we enjoyed them both. Did you find it jarring at the time when you're watching it and it doesn't have the official music or any of the kind of tropes you see in the Eon films? No, but I was maybe probably a pretty slow-witted kid, so mm. that that stuff might have just breezed right past me, I think. I I remember like if you're I'm I'm not saying I sit, remember sitting in the theater watching this, but I very specifically remember Siskel and Ebert having a good time while reviewing this movie. I think they liked it. I know Ebert did for sure. Yeah, yeah. It was it was not some controversial thing in terms of like mainstream ingestion. It was it was there's two movies this year, and you can go see this one or this one or both, and and we rolled with it. I think we just rolled with it. Is in a, to answer your question, I, I think there's some sort of there's some sort of tribalism that's appeared in fandom. Actually, that's not a big statement. Tribalism definitely exists in fandom. Bit of an understatement, yeah. Yeah, if anything. But, and I asked you this question before we started, 
to just have a think about whether there's 27 or 25 official James Bond films. I sit in the 27 camp and I always think I understand the McClory of it all and I understand the behind the scenes, which we'll get into. But this for me is a James Bond film. It's got Sean Connery playing James Bond. What more do you need? You've got Sean Connery. You've got a a proper Ian Fleming plot, which you hadn't seen in, I want to say, maybe 14 years at that point. I mean, give or take some of the pillaging that For for, for Your Eyes Only did of of the short stories. But it's an adaptation of a Fleming novel. And, um, you know, you can get a little existential about it. Like, what makes something an official James Bond movie? Is it a song? Is it a gun barrel? Because I can find official entries for each one of these little things that doesn't have those things. Is it a pre-title sequence? Dr. No doesn't have a pre-title sequence. Is it a shitty song? (laughs) Like, there's plenty (laughs) of shitty songs in the official canon. Uh, the gun barrel sequence, we seem to have sort of like uh, had some sort of compulsory uh, departure from in, in the last 15 years. It's you, I, I think that the Bond movie is, is more than the sum of its parts and, and that a checklist does not make it official. And if it's about, oh, did Cubby Broccoli produce it or not? Well, Cubby Broccoli didn't produce the last 20 years of movies. Um, so... To me, it's a little arbitrary and everybody has their, as fans, we like to file things. Everything has to be in it, in its place and mm-hmm. it's ranking and it's, you know, uh, cataloging and categorizing. And I, I'm just fatigued by all that. So the question about whether or not this is an official entry to me is, is less interesting than, than discussing the merits of the film and, uh, and celebrating the stuff in it that's, kind of unicorn yep. do you know what i mean Absolutely. there's shit in this movie that is not in any other bond movie and it's a weird it's almost like a peephole into an alternate universe which i think is exciting 25 films in or 27 in. yeah and you just think you know this is the the what could have been bond film in a sense yes. and, and it it could have opened pandora's box it, it could have really gone a different way in history um, but I, I think we'll, we'll probably examine that a bit more. But I'm glad you're in the camp of let's just have some fun with it, really. Mm. As as am I. Um, I think that they called it the fun movement in Casino Royale 67. So you're part of the fun movement, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about you, Cam? Your first experience with Never Say Never Again. Yeah, so um, as I said, you know, Roger Moore was a big deal for me. And so I was watching a lot of his movies as a kid. I don't... Typically what happened was when one was going to be airing on TV, my parents would tape it for us. And that's how I saw From Russia With Love the first time. And they taped Never Say Never Again. And I remember watching it one afternoon and I wasn't aware it was a Thunderball remake. I had seen Thunderball at this point. And I remember just watching it. It didn't hold my attention as much as some of the other Bonds. I probably was like 10 or 11 when I saw it. Um, But I, I mean, I watched it all the way through. But I remember as I was watching it, having this slowly dawning like, I'm able to predict what's about to happen. Why can I do that? <laughs> I don't understand. And I didn't... I'm trying to think of at that age, had I seen many remakes? Maybe not. Maybe I hadn't really seen a remake before, especially under a different title. So it was very confusing. And I remember being really just astonished when I predicted how Largo would die in the movie. And I was like, oh my God, like something's going on. And I think I actually went to my mom afterwards and asked, like, why was this the same as Thunderball? And she explained the remake situation. But... Yeah, it was one I didn't have like a a real fandom for as a kid. And I think that was partially because I got the the VHS sets and everything. And obviously that wasn't included in those sets. So it always felt like a little bit of an outlier uh, and one of the Bond films I'd seen the least. Which is fair enough because it was never 
really publicly made available. No. And I remember actually when I, my friend Mark, um, when we were in our teens, I made him watch all the Bond movies and I would then make him come with me to see like the Brosnan films. And I showed him Never Sin Ever Again. And again, like I remember watching it at the time, it just felt a little off to me in ways that I think I can make sense of now. But as a teenager, I was just like, I don't know why, but this doesn't connect with me the same way as the other ones do. Which is an entirely fair interpretation of the film. I think it's hard to adapt something twice Mm. um, and get away with it, which I think we'll also deal with. As for me, as listeners will know, I'm not the hugest James Bond fan in the world. I've seen them all. I've seen a lot of them in the theatre. Great films, but the spy world doesn't end and begin at James Bond. That being said, a couple of years back, the genesis of this podcast was I got a complete box set of the 24 quote-unquote official James Bond films at the time, and I watched them through to Spectre. I was live texting Cam throughout with my thoughts, and at the end, I went and watched Casino Royale 67, and never to never again, I went out and sought copies of them because I felt like I wanted to watch all of the James Bond films. And I remember coming out of Never to Never Again thinking, this is fun. It reminds me of an 80s Bond film. Yeah. And I I think you could put this next to Octopussy same year and I think yeah there's a, a lot of similarities there. Mm-hmm. But before we talk about the behind the scenes of Never Say Never Again here is your letterbox.com synopsis. Thunderball. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Ian Fleming once wrote a book with Kevin McClory. Never say never again. Sean Connery is James Bond 007. James Bond returns as secret agent 007 to battle the evil organization Spectre. Bond must defeat Largo, who has stolen two atomic warheads for nuclear blackmail. But Bond has an ally in Largo's girlfriend, the Willowy Domino, who falls for (laughs) Bond and seeks revenge. Willowy. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I wouldn't have used that word. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. That, that that was fine. That's a fine synopsis. If you haven't seen the film, or haven't seen Thunderball, or read the book, or uh, yeah, or read the synopsis of Warhead Two Thousand. Um, but Cam, as I alluded to before, how did this film happen? Oh boy. Um. So the behind the scenes on this one is very dense. So I'm going to give you the kind of the simple version, the way I did with Casino Royale '67, because otherwise it would be about a four-hour podcast. But you know what? Listen to our Thunderball episode where we talk a lot about the rights to Thunderball and how originally it was a um, script. It began its life as a, as a, as a uh, script written by Kevin McClory, Ian Fleming, and Jack Whittingham called James Bond of the Secret Service, which eventually became the Thunderball novel, which then caused all sorts of law issues when Eon wanted to make the Thunderball film. And basically the outcome of this was that Kevin McClory, the producer who um, was a producer on Thunderball, maintained the right to make a Thunderball remake 10 years after um, Thunderball had come out. So around 1975. And one of the smart things he did early on was he included Connery as a consultant starting in the mid-70s. And so like Connery was actually a pretty strong voice in the creation of what would become Never Say Never Again. And they teamed up with Len Dayton, the um, creator of Harry Palmer, although not known as Harry Palmer in the uh, Ipcris file and what have you uh. novels. <laughs> and they worked on a screenplay called Warhead. And um, 
it was going to be a little more of an original film. Um, I've heard descriptions of it as Star Wars underwater. It would involve like an underwater kingdom, mechanical sharks with nukes on their backs, helicopter fights on the Statue of Liberty. And apparently those sharks were going to invade the sewers of New York at a certain point as well. So it was like kind of kind of crazy. Hang on. Did the, the writers of Remo Williams get a copy of this script at some point? <laughs> Well, that would be uh, definitely a movie worth watching. Remo Williams too. I, I I would have loved there to have been another adventure of Remo. Yeah. So the problem with this script for Warhead was that um, it was essentially, in many ways, an original Bond film, and so Eon started, um, you know, hitting them with lawsuits, and they were also struggling to find financing. So it kind of just lay dormant for a while. And it wasn't until producer Jack Schwartzman entered the picture that things got figured out. He had made his name mostly as an exec producer in, on 1979's Peter Sellers film, Being There. And he came on board and figured out how to actually make this movie happen. And obviously a big part of the problem was the original Bond film concept. That just did not work. And so he said, look, we got to toss that script and basically focus on remaking the novel Thunderbolt. That's what we have the rights to. Which is... No easy feat when you've got Eon breathing down your necks at the same time. No, no, no. Um, but to be fair, I, I don't know the box office off the top of my head, but I, Thunderball was one of the most successful ones. Yeah, it was. And I think it at the time was like the most successful. Um, and I don't know if that was the Goldfinger effect because Goldfinger was so insanely popular that the, like, the sequel really launched off of that. But yeah, there's a whole documentary on the um, home video releases on the Thunderball disc about the Thunderball phenomenon and just how massive it was. They really hit the gas on, on merch and whatnot that year. 65 is when you see all of the kids tie-in products and whatnot. And I believe when you adjust for inflation, Thunderball is only behind Skyfall on the box office. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard legend as to why Thunderball was so successful. Would, would you like to hear it? Okay. Yeah. Well, apparently people were falling asleep oh. watching the underwater sequences, oh. and then they were just like charging them double because they fell asleep in their chairs. <laughs> this conversation is over. Phil, <laughs> Phil, you've got to be the uh, deciding vote here. Where do you come down on Thunderball? Uh, you know, Thunderball is like the most fun, chill three days you can spend watching a movie. That's right. <laughs> It's Hangout Bond. <laughs> it's Hangout Bond. It really is. It's, uh, you know, staring at Technicolor, staring at the Bahamas, staring at maybe the most beautiful collection of women uh, in one Bond film, if you ask mm -hmm. me. Uh, it's, it's got nowhere to be, and if you don't either, it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> you are literally going on vacation with James Bond in that movie, and it's a hell of a vacation. Yes, exactly. I have a distinct feeling I'm going to have an uphill battle this episode, but uh, please, Cam, please do continue. Yeah, so they were looking for a director to tackle this film, and they had a, a screenplay from Lorenzo Semple Jr. He'd come on board. He was a TV and film vet. He'd created the Batman TV show with Adam West. He had also done some spy movies like Fathom. Uh, he'd done Parallax View. He'd done Three Days of the Condor. And this was his follow-up to Flash Gordon, the adaptation of the uh, pulp property that Timothy Dalton actually co-starred in that film. And um, so they had this kind of rough remake script. It was not finished. And Connery had signed on. And one of the um, kind of the caveats with him signing on was, in addition to $5 million and profits from the um, ultimate uh, gross, he also had casting and script approval. So he had a lot of power on this movie, a lot. And so when they were talking to directors, 
they, you know, um, Connery approached Richard Donner, who turned it down. They also talked to Peter Hunt, who had directed Honor Majesties and edited several Bond films. And he turned it down because of his associations with Eon. He just didn't feel comfortable jumping to Never Say Never Again. And so they brought in Irvin Kirshner. Um, he was a you know journeyman director. He'd been around since the, uh, 1950. He'd done documentaries, TV, and also several movies. He'd worked with Connery on a film called A Fine Madness in 1966. He'd also done a spy spoof called Spies, which reteamed the MASH pairing of Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould. Um, he'd done Return of the Man Called Horse, which, again, Scott, bring it back to horse hearts. And uh, he had also done The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, and this was his follow-up. So he was really coming in hot and this is getting towards the end of his career he would wrap his um career in really in motion pictures with 1990s robocop 2 so this is really only seven years before the end for kirshner but he's coming off a massive massive hit but part of the issue was they didn't have a screenplay and so it kind of just fortuitously happened that um uh that kirshner was at elstree studios and he ran into dick clement and ian lafernay who were two comedy writers working in Britain. They'd done shows like Porridge and On the Rocks. And they also um, had made a spy film called Catch Me a Spy, starring Kirk Douglas, which Scott, you and I have seen. We have seen. And now is probably a good time to announce one of our two interviews uh, over the next two weeks for Never Say Never Again. I'll, I'll save the second one because uh, we'll probably mention that in a minute. But we are speaking to Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, uh this Friday. Uh, just about their involvement with Never Say Never Again, as well as uh, Catch Me a Spy, and also their connections with things like I'll Be the Same Pet. You know, Pat Roach is in that and in this film. A lot of fun and a great discussion. Right. So, yes, they had bumped into Kirshner, and at this point, Semple had been dismissed. Um, Connery just wasn't happy with them. And there'd been, so, you know, a number of tinkerings on the script. Even Francis Ford Coppola, who um, is the brother of Talia Shire, who is married to producer Jack Schwartzman. Francis Ford Coppola had actually done some work on the script as well. A few people had been involved with the screenplay for Never Seen Ever Again. I really want to try and figure out what scene he worked on. <laughs> yeah, what's the most Godfather-like scene? Oh, I got it. It's the horse jumping off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yep, that's it. <laughs> there you go. Make that canon. So um, basically what happened was Clement and Frenet talked to... Um, Kirshner and basically just were like, hey, do you need a rewrite? And I think in their minds, it was like, yeah, this will just be a quick job we can help you with. But it turned out to be a very long job where they would get hired, ultimately go on set and be there through the production and also in post-production helping out a lot as well. And they would introduce elements like Nigel uh, Small Fawcett and just some character punch-ups. They aren't credited on the final film, but you can hear more of what they have to say about the production on that interview Scott just mentioned. And uh, so... I think one of the key processes you want to go through when you're making art is that every draft of a screenplay has to be run thoroughly by lawyers to ensure that it is, you know, on okay grounds to be told. And that was the case with Never Seen Ever Again, where every draft of this screenplay had an army of lawyers going through it because Eon was uh, very litigious and wanted to stop this movie at all costs. So um, that's always a great way to go through the creative process. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't hold you back at all. As far as I'm concerned. I mean, we run all of our scripts by legal. And they've turned down all of them. <laughs> <laughs> They'd need to. Mm. And uh, as I said, you know, Connery was very involved. And so even with like casting, he was playing a key role there because he had approval. And um, so he suggested Klaus Maria Brandauer. 
also Max von Sydow. Um, Irvin Kirshner was the one that actually hired on Barbara Carrera. And uh, that was through a fortuitous bumping into her scenario. Scott, is there something you want to say about that? Well, I do have something I want to say about that because, um, well, I, I'm just going to pat us both on the back and just say that I am very excited to tell you all that we are speaking to Miss Barbara Carrera. What? I mean, yeah, we have, she sat down with us for like 90 minutes spoke all about Never to Never Again, a bunch of stories I'd never heard before, but we also got to talk about Condor Man, which yeah. for me was the, really the more important <laughs> of stories to talk about. Like, I, I never thought I'd speak to anyone that was involved with Condor Man, but boy was I excited. But yes, next week, uh, next Tuesday from the when this episode launches, Barbara Carrera interview will be hitting the air, so stay tuned for that too. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Congrats on that. It's all Scott. All Scott. It is all me. That's right. I want, I want all that credit. But please keep bringing it to me, Phil. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when it came to casting Domino, they wanted a supermodel, Dalila Di Lazaro, who I'm not familiar with at all. And she turned it down. And so it was actually Connery's wife, Micheline, who suggested Kim Basinger. And Kim Basinger, it seems, did not have a good experience. Uh, Dick Clement talks about this in some of the um, interviews I've read with him where he just said, like, they were not able to do a lot with her character and she was very frustrated and apparently didn't get along very well with Urban Kirshner. Apparently to this day, like Kim Basinger won't talk about this film. Yeah, a friend of the show, AJ Chowdhury, who wrote Some Kind of Hero, fantastic book. Um, I was speaking to him the other day about Kim Basinger and, and just one of those people that will not talk about working on Bond. And I from what I've learned from, as you say, from Dick Clement and other things I've read in the past, she did not have a good time with this production, which is an absolute shame. Yeah, yeah. So um, just kind of one of the last notes in terms of the production, the title. Um, this movie was being shot under the title Warhead throughout production, but they ended up going with Never Say Never Again, which was a suggestion of Connery's uh, wife, Micheline, because Connery famously, after doing Diamonds Are Forever, had said never would he ever play James Bond again. And so the joke title of Never Seen Ever Again was uh, stumbled upon. I mean, what a title to just stumble upon as well. It's not bad. Like it, it's. I think it's one of the better titles that Bond's ever had. Well, yeah. Do you think Warhead is a good title? No. No. It's very yeah. bland. What does it mean? Warhead sounds like something Golden and Globus would have put out in 1985, like starring like Charles Bronson or maybe Michael York on an off month. Yeah, like it would be in a two-pack with like Assassination, another Charles Bronson film or something like that. Like Warhead sounds yep, so generic. Yep. And maybe if you use that title in a different era, but in like 1980s, boy, it would really blend into the, uh, to the landscape there. Mm -hmm. Maybe you put like a, a question mark? Warhead? <laughs> <laughs> well, put a, a, a button in that one because we're going to come back to Warhead in a minute. So... Yeah. Uh, this movie had, went wildly over budget. It had a budget ultimately of $36 million, but domestically it did 55.5, international 104.5 for a worldwide total of 160. And as we mentioned, this was the same year as Octopussy, so you had a real battle of the bonds at the box office. Octopussy would prove to be the, uh, I guess, the king at the box office with 187.5, but Never Say Never Again was nonetheless hugely successful, and it landed number four for the year one spot behind Octopussy. The top three was Return of the Jedi, number one, obviously. Number two, Flashdance. Number three, Octopussy. And then following, Never Say Never Again. Wow. See, people will say, and this is mostly online, that this film was a failure. 
But judging from that, it really wasn't. I'm, I'm surprised there wasn't some sort of follow-up. Do you think it's perceived as a failure because Octopussy beat it? Phil? We, we, do, like to, uh, we do like to sort of pit things against each other in, in, in these spaces. So, yeah, I think there had to be a victor and a loser. So if Octopussy is the victor, then this is the loser. And I think that, as you say, it, it made enough money to not be considered a failure by anybody involved with it. I think that uh, following it up would have been a problem because I think Connery didn't want to get into the Bond business again. He just wanted to you know, have this, have this one go around and, uh, and how many more times can, can Kevin McClory make Thunderball? Like, well, <laughs> he li- literally only had the rights to that story. I mean, he tried again, but you know, there's a, there's a gestation period like, uh, like locusts, you know, Kevin McClory's Thunderball can only come up every 27 years or so. Maybe Thunderball could have been like our Hamlet, um, where we just every handful of years <laughs> get a new version of Thunderball. <laughs> So who, who's playing uh, Bond in the next version of Thunderball then? Are we, are we getting Timothy Dalton out of uh... uh Well, if they're making it now, it's Brosnan, right? Yeah. I would absolutely turn up day one <laughs> for that film. I'm going to just sort of do, do some math on here uh, and tell you that currently Daniel Craig is one year older than Connery was in Never Say Never Again. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah. So, you know, maybe when he's done playing Macbeth, he can uh, <laughs> hop back in. Are you dead? Never, never say never again. <laughs> and he's still holding the skull in his hand. <laughs> Wait, that's Hamlet. I'm mixing up my Hamlet and my Macbeth. Oh, well, nonetheless. Uh, yeah, I, didn't want to, I wasn't going to correct you on your own podcast. The worst part is I'm an English major, so that's hugely embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, you are the fool here, Ken. Yep, it's true. Um, so a couple just final notes. At the Golden Globes that year, Barbara Carrera was nominated for Best Supporting Actress and lost Yes. And lost to Cher in Silkwood. Silkwood's a good movie. Whoa. Okay, well I will film, have you seen Silkwood? I mean back at when it was on HBO in the eighties and whatnot. And that's you know, that's a, a capital S, capital A serious acting uh performance. You know, and that was that was a big one for Cher because Cher was like some variety show singer at the point at that time. Mm-hmm. Silkwood was her like step toward legitimacy, and after that, she did uh, Moonstruck and Mask and, and all these other sort of serious roles. So, you know, I love Barbara Carrera as Fatima Blush, but I wouldn't have stepped on Cher's moment there either. I'm sure it's a good film, but it pales in comparison to her appearance in Mamma Mia Two. Here we go again. Fair. I haven't seen that, so I'll have to take your word for it. And we uh, mentioned, you know, how many times could one remake Thunderball? Well, Kevin McClory tried uh, in the late 80s. He tried to get a film called Warhead 8 going. (laughs) And he did apparently approach Pierce Brosnan, who at that point had had to leave the Bond role because of his Remington Steel contract. So Kevin McClory was always kind of chasing after potential Bond actors or past Bond actors. Nothing obviously happened in 89 because of, again, Eon filing lawsuits and then in 1996 he announced he would be making warhead 2000 ad with timothy dalton possibly to be playing james bond and he was also looking to pair up with sony who had the rights to casino royale because of the 67 spoof and try to have like at least two competing bond films you know warhead 2000 ad as well as a casino royale remake but again eon mgm had these things shot down and after Kevin McClory died in 2006, Eon went to work and in 2013 got the rights back to all the Thunderball material. 
I was just trying to look up the cast of people who played James Bond in Casino Royale 67. Wonder if he ever tapped any of those guys up, but uh, David Niven, <laughs> Peter Sellers, they, they both yeah. passed in the early eighties, unfortunately. Woody Allen, Woody Allen, oh, yeah. bring him back in Warhead Eight. Where's the eight come from? What does the eight mean? <laughs> yeah, because you'd think he'd call it like eighty-seven or eighty-nine or whatever year it was. Uh, I don't know. Ah, uh, I see. Like it's a year thing. Uh, I see. Eight makes no sense. I have no idea. I mean, I, I love the pitch. Warhead eighty-nine with uh, Woody Allen. <laughs> <laughs> He's writing a strongly worded letter to the Times. Yeah. So that uh, wraps up my behind the scenes on the very convoluted um, creation of Never Seen Ever Again. Yeah. Uh, it, it's uh, it's one of those films almost sometimes that it's actually more fascinating to look at what happened and how we got there than necessarily the film itself. Um, but we are here and we are talking about the film that answered the question that Bond fans have been discussing since the 60s. What is stronger Two nuclear missiles or James Bond's piss. Here is our review <laughs> of Never Say Never Again. Phil, you you know you loved it in the eighties, just like any other Bond film. What do you think about Never Say Never Again in twenty twenty two? Well, as we touched on earlier, I I love it as a, a window into an alternate universe. The idea that like what would a Sean Connery eighties Bond movie look like? You know, in seventy one, no one thought they were going to get that, and in the fact that. Or what would a Roger, what would a Sean Connery, Roger Moore Bond look like? Because I think some people sort of retroactively try to call Diamonds a oh it's it's he's back, but it's with the Mankiewicz of it all. This is a this is a uh, a Roger Moore Bond. It just happens to have Sean Connery, but th- that's Diamonds has its own scuzzy energy and it's something else entirely. I think that this one just has this '80s Superman three sheen to it. It's <laughs> sort of junky, but a kind of a lot of fun. Uh, Connery. Put the picture side by side. Why does Connery look younger in this one than he did in 1971? It's crazy. That blows my mind. Um, he's having fun. He's clearly enjoying himself in a way that he hadn't been since maybe Thunderball. And um, I think it's got a very unfortunate score. Yeah. And and that's that's a shame. And that's a deal breaker for a lot of people. But, you know, uh, we've got we've got bad official bond scores too, I think. So it's not a deal breaker for me. Um, reinventing Domino and her brother is like, I don't know what are they Californian or something in here instead of the, uh, like the, the Italian thing that was happening in Thunderball is interesting. I think, well, they made them and French th- in Thunderball. Didn't it was like French and Thunderball and then Italian here, I guess, but they don't seem very Italian. Or were they French in the novel and Italian in the movie? I don't know. He was like, I don't know. I thought I thought her brother was very Italian in Thunderball, the film, but who knows? Um, but they're they're straight up Americans here. I mean, Kim, Kim Basinger has no accent. The the dude that's her brother is literally from Superman three. Um, although I guess he's Irish. Oh, who is he in Superman three? He's he's Lana Lang's boyfriend. Oh my god! Yeah. Okay. He just reminds me so much of William Atherton that I just get distracted when I'm looking at him in this movie. There is that energy, but I, I do believe that that gentleman is Irish in reality. Huh. So he's doing a great job as a, as a non-Irish person here. That does explain the eye, though. Maybe he was assimilated by that machine in Superman 3, and that's why he has the weird laser <laughs> eye in this film. Yes, there it is. Um, and I think that, I don't know, we, we are fandom and, and the Bond crowd is in such a hurry to sweep this movie under the carpet that there's a lot of just hidden pleasures in there that don't get... Um, don't get their due. I love an M that's younger than Bond. That's weird and different. Really dig that. I like Rowan Atkinson in this movie. Um, 
a lot of fun. And Klaus Maria Brandauer is was one of the great actors of the early 80s. Yeah. Like he was a discovery maybe at this point. He wasn't you know a big name and he never really got to be a big name. But he was uh, – God, I can't remember what movie he was in. But he was in some Oscar-nominated stuff right around this time that this was a bit of a get. I believe it was uh, the movie Mephisto that got him this job. There yeah. it is. There it is. Okay. And then on top of all that, in five minutes of screen time, why not Max von Sydow as Blofeld? Why not? Unbelievable. And Fatima Blush is a great contribution to the Bond canon. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. I, I can't argue with any of that, really. I, I, some people will argue that that is the best Blofeld. Mm. And I could see that argument. Max von Sydow has a great time. He looks like he's having a laugh with the with the cat performing for the camera. Absolutely. Um, And I, I love what you said about people not allowing themselves to potentially indulge in the pleasures that is never never again and to a looser extent in casino royale 67 there's so much to find here and love especially if 80s bond films are your vibe mm-hmm. i'm more of a 90s mm-hmm. guy myself but i find a lot to love in this film i mean cam if you don't mind i'll, I'll jump in at this point yeah go nuts i was listening to a, a podcast the other day talking about a bond film and they were waxing poetically about it using all these big words people use to you know explain films and i just i was like okay yeah that's all there i suppose but for me this film is just fun it's just pure bond fun there's none of this baggage that we have in the modern era not that i have any problem with craig i think he's one of the better bonds and his era is 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 interesting in its own ways but if you just want a fun time with Sean Connery, who, as I definitely agree with what Phil said, it looks like he's having the most fun since Thunderball. Um, and a great cast of characters. Barbara Carrera is one of my favorite Bond sort of henchmen in the entire canon of Bond films. And you can draw a straight line between her and Xenia on the top, yeah. by the way. Mm. They definitely take a lot of her vibes and moved it to Xenia. And then you've also got to look at like the influence this film has had. It, there's, it's no surprise that a few years later with Dalton, they're doing a training sequence at the start. You know, all, all kinds of stuff that they've they've taken from this and lamped on and, and used later on, which we also pointed out in Casino Royale 67 when we spoke about that last time. The Eon guys aren't, aren't silly. They're looking at what works and taking it and using it in their own films. And there's a lot of stuff in here that works. But my top line review is, don't dismiss this film. It's a ton of fun. Okay, Octopussy beat it slightly in money. But if you want a fun 80s Bond film with a guy who made the role famous, and frankly, to many people, including myself, he is the James Bond. Never Say Never Again is the place to go. And Cam, I still think it's better than Thunderball. Oh, okay. I I can't agree with you there. I think (laughs) Never Say Never Again is one I've come around on a little more. I think for me... I can really get into the kind of the weirdness of it. Like that's one of my favorite things. If a Bond movie isn't going to be a Goldfinger from Russia with love, just like perfect engine for kind of thrills and set pieces, then I like them to be kind of odd. Like I like Diamonds Are Forever because of how strange it is. And you get these weird little asides. And for me, like Never Say Never Again offers a lot of those in the first hour plus. And so I find the movie actually quite engaging in the setup. I think it has fun with the setup. And I think things like Shrublands the way they work it into the plot here actually makes perhaps a little more sense than Thunderball, where it's a lot of him kind of trolling Guy Dolman throughout the opening sections. But like, 
who is Guy Dolman? Like, Count Lippy is confusing. What's his connection to this and that? Versus here, just by tying it to Fatima Blush, plot-wise, it makes way more sense and I think just works really well in setting up the basic caper of the movie. So I find, like, a lot of that stuff, a lot of the performances are a lot of fun for me in the first hour plus. To me, the gas just completely runs out of this thing around the point, frankly, Fatima Blush exits the movie and that's it like yeah. the 90 minute mark i don't even like her final section like the motorcycle chase or anything so you can even remove that and say it's a little bit earlier for me frankly like once she kind of leaves i find the energy just kind of dies on the movie and i know a lot of bond films get very bombastic and action oriented in the back halves where you can say well that applies to lots of them but for some reason this one just really doesn't even hold my attention by the end i find a lot of the payoff to the plot stuff just kind of going through the motions and I lose a lot of the spontaneous craziness that makes up the first half. That's fair. Something you said though, about um, the shrubland setup. It, yeah. Um, I would have, so M M sort of like questioning his health and asking him about the free radicals and how much white flour he eats and all that <laughs> stuff. That's right out of the novel. And it would have been so great to see Bernard Lee on a faddish health kick as, as is presented in the book, <laughs> deciding that bond has to sort of go get detoxed. Uh, so it's weird that this movie, I'm assuming, is I think about a day and a half shorter than Thunderball, but it includes that scene. Like, it was, it, I, it's just a, it's just a good character moment. It's a lot of fun, and it, and it sort of like sets up Connery's Bond very early in the film as uh, somebody who's kind of like, uh, how did someone put it once? Like as like a good natured adventurer. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's nothing particularly lethal or dangerous about him in the moment anymore, but like that vibe the way he's sort of receiving M's sort of pissy uh, grumblings about how he has to, you know, get, go to go to Shrumblids and get in, get in his, uh, get in shape a and saying that he's, he's been teaching at, at MI6 more than going on missions. I just love that setup so much. It's such a great character beat. I, I had a pin in that because I wanted to bring it up later, but you've brought it up beautifully, Phil. He mentions that Bond's been teaching. Yeah. What is Bond teaching? <laughs> well, because, yeah, like, the thing about Bond is he's kind of a terrible spy. He walks into locations and is like, hey, I'm Bond, James Bond, <laughs> you know. So um, <laughs> that's an excellent question because he would, uh, I would be quite concerned he'd get a lot of young candidates killed in the field. Yeah. <laughs> he probably did. That's why they stick, that's why they pull him out of retirement. <laughs> All right, this isn't working. <laughs> he'll just get himself killed out in the field. He's killing everyone else in yeah. the classroom. Yeah, that's fair. Go to the Bahamas. You don't want to know what happened to the class of 81. <laughs> They're all working for Spectre now. It's crazy. <laughs> well, okay. So it sounds like it's a bit of a mixed bag overall, but we all found a lot of enjoyment in the film. So I think let, let's take it over to likes first as per. Um, Phil, as the guest, you go first. Something you really liked about the film. Well, okay. I'll just lean into the thing I said earlier just now about how the the overall chill vibe of Connery in this is what I probably pop it in for. Watching him sort of just gotten so comfortable in the role, nothing left to prove, like absolutely nothing and no real chips on his shoulder. Mm. This is a particular energy of Connery that doesn't exist elsewhere in the series. Yeah. And that's what I come back to. And where do you come down on Diamonds Are Forever and his performance there? So I, I once called it his performance in Diamonds as like, he's he's like the uncle no one wanted to invite to the wedding, but had to <laughs> anyway. And he knows it. And he's kind of being a little shitty about it. <laughs> Yeah. You know what He's I mean? He's got that energy. He's like, yeah. yeah, you had to hire me back. 
nice try with the Lazenby fuckers. And then, and then he's, <laughs> and he's just got kind of like this, uh, not, not that he doesn't care. Connery is, is never anything less than watchable. Yeah. Right. But the, the danger of Dr. No and from Russia with love is gone. The, the sort of insouciance of, of Goldfinger is not there anymore. There's just something unpleasant about his vibe in diamonds are forever that makes it not, uh, a disc that I turn to very, very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he seems so much more comfortable here. And I mean, I guess, you know, Connery just having so much power over the production, I think that's something that very much appealed to him because it just seems like a lot of the battles with Eon were that he wanted to have a fairly significant role in uh, kind of being an equal partner with them on Bond films if he was going to stick on. And him able to do that here, it seems like he's just more content. And what I, while I'm not a huge Never Say Never Again fan, I do appreciate that it, by not being whatever you want to call it, an official Eon film or whatever you know tag people put on it these days, because of that, it allows them to do things that Eon wouldn't or couldn't. Right. And here giving us this sort of old Bond story, I don't think we'll probably get that with Eon. I don't know that they're that interested in that because, you know, Daniel Craig, same kind of age group, they weren't that interested in doing like elderly Bond or anything or aging Bond. And I think that's one thing they do quite well here is that they keep underlining that he is older. M constantly calls this out and seems consistently frustrated with him. And things like Shrublands, playing up the fact he's an older guy, it's the sort of thing a lot of franchises like to kind of, you know, say they're going to do. Say like Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which makes a couple old jokes and then he just settles right back into typical indie fighter mode. Mm-hmm. Here I like that consistently throughout the movie, they're very much underscoring that this is a older Bond who... By the time this mission wraps, I don't even have a real sense of him being like eager to continue on being a double O agent. He's just kind of like, eh, right. whatever. I'm going to sit next to the pool with Kim Bassinger for the rest of my days. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that does not sound like a bad retirement plan. Uh, I I completely agree. I, I don't think you'd ever see uh, an older Bond story. Much as I think if you put a call into Pierce Brosnan with a good script, he would turn up. Yeah. Um, And I would love to see that. And I think the idea of an older Bond dealing with, you know, his many scars and, you know, dodgy vertebrae is a fascinating one. I do think the film loses it towards the end. By the time, um, you know, Bond and Felix Leiter are flying around in jetpacks, you know, little marionette dolls on the side of the screen. <laughs> um, I, I I think he's trying to relive his Thunderball energy there, which is absolutely fine. But I, I love the concept at the beginning. It's maybe not delivered at the end, but as Cam said earlier, I and I agree, I think the film does lose a bit of the energy as it goes on. But I do agree, Phil, it, it's great to see Connery just relaxing into something. He clearly wanted to do this film. He obviously probably wanted the money, but wanted to do the film, was interested in the idea and working with the people involved. I know he was he worked closely with Dick Clement and Ian LeFrenet, um, big fans of them. So he put a team together that he liked hmm. and was passionate about it. And I think that shows. Absolutely. And it feels almost in some ways like a nice little companion piece for Connery to um, Robin and Marion, which was like the final Robin Hood story. And here you have kind of like, you know, the Connery final 007 adventure in a way. I love Robin and Marion uh, so much. And <clears throat> something something on another podcast, we, we, we were all playing what if, and we had to come up with a what if and a thing. And my, my what if was what if Sean Connery liked playing James Bond? <laughs> 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 and, and you... What I, I sort of posited a whole alternate 1970s decade where, where his growing relationship with Sidney Lumet and sort of doing more serious stuff could have turned the franchise into something very, very different. And instead of 
you know, the Roger Moore sort of lighter touch, which I think Connery with Never Say Never Again proved that he was equally uh, capable of, of handling. But I think we might have gotten something very different from Connery if he was really invested in this role in, in, in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the sort of thing where like there's an ambling energy to this movie that I think works because of Thunderball is not like a propulsive story. And so you have a Connery here where if you dropped him in like this performance in something that was more akin to From Russia With Love, I don't think it would work at all. Correct. But here, pairing him opposite Largo, Largo is kind of like the perfect villain for an older Connery to be taking on as Bond. Because he's not like a Trevelyan or something. He's not a physical adversary. He's someone who's kind of a little twerp. And that's the kind of villain who it's fun to watch this older, more experienced man kind of make a fool of. Yeah, or play a video game against. <laughs> yeah. What a what a great sequence that was. I mean, I, I have I have <laughs> questions about the fact that there's like video games in a casino. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But like they managed to make two guys sitting at a mahogany table somewhat interesting. Well, did they? Oh okay, maybe not. I, I will <laughs> say one thing that made me laugh today, it just popped out when I was watching the film. It's such like a older people not understanding what video game culture is, writing it into a script because both mm. of your leads are playing video games at a mahogany table. Yeah. <laughs> like anyone who's been in an arcade, the arcade cabinets aren't made of mahogany. Like they're, they're like plastic, but they, they had to go with this like rich, deep mahogany and it just made me laugh that they didn't really understand any of that. That's what crazy millionaires do is they build <laughs> mahogany uh, arcade games. And um, Scott, I have a request for you. Um, can you please make a GIF of uh, Largo releasing the joysticks because I feel like that needs to be in the universe. Consider it done. Thank you. Thank you. And someone, just to point out to your listeners in case they hadn't heard this, but if you if you watch that video game sequence and you keep your eyes peeled, they sneak a little gun barrel in there, right? You guys talked about that yet? Yeah, we haven't, but it, it's in there. It's very sneaky. I appreciate the effort that went <laughs> into sneaking that into the film. <laughs> someone in the graphics department had to be like, I hope they don't see this. Just hardcore trolling. I'm sure there was a team of lawyers watching them. Mm-hmm. You know, you said about the lawyers, the thing about, you know, uh, cr- lawyers uh, double checking all your work as part of the creative process. I think it's a very, very uh, important part of art that art works uh, with some sort of restriction. Mm-hmm. And it works against like something, you know, uh, there's a, there's this famous film experiment called The Five Obstructions where these filmmakers sort of like pitched, you know, here, you have to make this, but it has to be this. And they would give them these weird parameters that they had to, these lines they had to color inside of. And I think that some of the uh, cooler things that we're celebrating about this movie are a result of them having to sort of think on their feet to some degree. Well, like Scott and I are big fans of Star Trek. And um, there was like very strong dictates to writers as to how they could write Star Trek show uh, episodes, specifically in like TNG. Mm -hmm. And it was about them finding creativity and freedom within the confines of a very rigid structure that actually resulted in a lot of great stories. Yeah, Rod Serling's whole Twilight Zone thing was about what he couldn't write about, and he had to sort of get creative and get crafty. Mm-hmm. Sorry, sidebar, I was going to say, how are you guys liking Strange New Worlds, by the way? I'm actually really enjoying Strange New Worlds. It's a lot of fun so far. Yeah, I've been so checked out of Star Trek for years and years, and this is this is bringing me back in a, in a big way. I'm really enjoying it. We we both met at a Star Trek convention. So our like is that right? our connection in Las Vegas, funnily enough, the Diamonds connection for you there. Hey. But, um, and... No, neither of us have been particularly happy with some of the output that they've had recently. But I think Strange New Worlds is the first thing to sort of galvanize us both into being, no, this is how you do it. Yes. Same page. Uh, as for me, in terms of things I like, 
I'm going to bring up Barbara Carrera again because I'm talking to her next week and I can't uh, stop being excited about it. It's great. But for me, Barbara Carrera's Fatima Blush is the lifeblood of this film. Sean Connery is here. He is potentially at his best since Thunderball. But in terms of an antagonist, I'm not a big Largo guy in this film, Mm -hmm. but I do love what Barbara Carrera is doing. And she just brings this like violent energy to this film this propulsiveness whenever she's on screen you are immediately drawn to her you know when she's like trying to give give like drugs uh, the heroin to um <laughs> jack patachi like come to mama she'll give you your medicine and it's like this is fantastic she is chewing up the scenery and i am completely chaos. here for it. yeah chaos she's an agent of chaos perfect there it is I am a huge fan of this character. It's rare to find, I think, like a character in a Bond film where it feels like just like the writers are having the absolute time of their lives every single second the character's on screen. And that's the case with Fatima, where it's like they realized what they had and like just doubled down. And I know that she contributed a number of ideas, like the whole dancing down the stairs moment, things like that. But you could just like string together her scenes and you would have just a hilarious, fun, exciting movie. It's an energy that I wish kind of infected the whole movie because I think it could be really interesting then and maybe move away from kind of being more of just your, in a way, standard 80s Bond film into something a little crazier. But I mean, that scene you referenced with the drug, Scott, is incredible. The scene where she's just like beating the crap out of, uh, you know, the pilot there, Jack, is insane in all the best ways. She's got a crazy sex scene with Connery that's intercut with footage of fish that's insane. Like, every moment (laughs) with that character works. The only thing I don't like is the way she gets her comeuppance, which just, it it feels a little bit in keeping to me with, like, Winton Kidd, who I'm a big fan of, those, you know, those two villains, because they genuinely are dangerous, and they get to jump on Bond several times, and then they get very, like, jokey send-offs at the end of the movie, and that's kind of the case with her. I've never been a fan of the you know, write that I'm the greatest lover ever sort of thing and then shot with a pen. It probably doesn't help that you keep trying to get me to write that for you as well. It's true, and I am wearing a feathered <laughs> hat at the time too. <laughs> um, I mean, just like that entrance where they're just it's just a shot of her feet in high heels. Mm. Like, I don't think there's, there's not any other Bond film that would take that chance and that weird shot. It would just be an establishing shot of her walking in the room looking good. And, and, and I appreciate that this film takes that chance. Like, can you think of a character in an Eon film that's portrayed as kind of as big as this? Like, Xenia is big, but I feel like she doesn't stand maybe as outside of the world as Fatima does. Like, Fatima feels almost like she's coming from another movie, but in a great way. In a way that brings the movie just really to life every time. Yeah. On the on the coming in from another movie tip, I feel like Dr. Kaufman uh, in Tomorrow Never Dies is kind yeah. of bringing that weird, crazy energy that's sort of... Like like you said, from another movie out of nowhere, um, but the I I'd say that that's maybe the only one I can th- even think of offhand. Those two are for the better. I will also throw in Jinx. <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's consistent. I think with the movie, well, maybe with that movie, but not the rest of the movies. <laughs> uh, th- there's not many Yo Mama jokes in Bond films. That's uh, true. Uh, just uh, yeah, that that that's my two cents on that one. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, 
we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Yippee! Our Star Wars Episode One coverage on Agents in the Field is out now. Plus, we are tracking down Hannibal Lecter and the Tooth Fairy in Michael Mann's Manhunter. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Uh, Cam, what about you? Something you liked? Um, well, I mean, for me, like the older Bond aspect is really big, but um, I think one of the things that I appreciate is being a fan of Thunderball. I'm a big fan of sharks. And I think this movie has some of the best shark set pieces we've gotten in the franchise. I think maybe the gold standard might be in Free Your Eyes Only when they're being dragged to the coral. That one's pretty great. But just, I mean, they achieved some of these shark scenes in very um, inhumane ways. Not good. Where it was, uh, yeah, because the thing about sharks is they need to move to breathe. And part of the approach to tackling the sharks here was to hold them still so they couldn't breathe. And then release them and throw them basically at, you know, the actors or stuntmen, which, you know, they were docile from lack of oxygen. Not great. And the moment where that shark just really freaks out, it was because it was having basically a reaction to this process. So again, 1980s, different uh, approach to animal welfare when making films. But I think like the actual sequence where you have those tiger sharks in that undersea wreck being, you know, drawn in by the tracker on Bond's, um, you know, oxygen pack is really incredible stuff to the point where I'm watching it going like, this looks unbelievably dangerous. And that danger, I actually feel watching the sequence. It's moments like that. Like, I don't think a lot of the action in Never Say Never Again is particularly memorable. I mean, I mentioned the motorcycle chase, which I'm not a big fan of. But like, I think that shark sequence really does stand out as a series um, high point for me. I would say the training sequence at the start is a lot of fun if you take the score away. It feels Um, to me like a Chuck Norris movie. (laughs) <laughs> I, 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 is that because of a toupee or everything Every, just it has an energy that just like so 80s chuck norris programmer to me uh, i kind of especially if like we had the original with like the ticking clock i think that would have really worked there's an, there's an edit on youtube actually that's really fun to watch with the john barry score instead mm. of that horrible horrible theme song and that's a really good watch um i'd also say the shrublands fight with pat roach is a ton of fun right yeah that's a good one too yes. When they when they when they score it to like people watching football in the background, I think it's hilarious because like Pat Roach punches Bond in the face and he's like he shoots, he scores, and the crowd goes wild. And I, I just I think that that's definitely Dick Clement and Lafrenet comedy right there. Um, but you know with the with the sharks, it, I think you're completely right. It's a terrifying scene, and if some people will say Thunderball, the shark scenes are quite tame looking back on it now, but for the '60s, that was pretty terrifying. Well, we hadn't great. had Jaws yet. Yeah, that's great. This is like the natural evolution of that. This actually feels like it has a lot of tension. Those actors are right next to those sharks. Yeah. There's no perspex in the way. And it's like crazy because like, yeah, you don't mess with tiger sharks. You really don't. Like, and the fact that they were taking those chances is crazy just across the board. Which I think is probably something I'll get back to in my dislike section. But um, speaking of dislikes, Phil, one from you, something you disliked about the film. Hmm. Well, 
it's the obvious answer, but I, I think that the score is kind of not up to snuff. It's not, we were spoiled by John Barry, by Bill Conti, by uh, Marvin Hamlish. And I think this just isn't there. And it's kind of a, kind of a drag. There's like, it, it feels lazy. There's, there's a, there's a repetitiveness to that score that I, you don't see again in the franchise until Spectre, maybe. <laughs> Spectre uses Skyfall score over again, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and but but what I hate about the score is that that the score just not being great gives everybody a license to dismiss the film, which I think is, uh, like that's the biggest disservice that this score does to this film is that it 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 uh, makes people hand wave the whole movie because you don't hear it because of what it's not right, and that's really not fair to the score, but. A better score might have made it made it might have made a stronger case for this movie. I I think they just missed an opportunity to do something different. They they've just gone for that sort of Bond ballad, but it's not even a good one. Generic. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's so middle of the road. It's not my least favorite Bond song, funnily enough, but it's it's in in yeah. the bottom five, I would say. And like starting the film off with it just feels like a misfire. Yeah, the song is terrible, but 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 really, I, when I, I was speaking about more about the overall score, which is just oh sure, like a generic carpet of music, right? It's not well that um, that sort of jazz music as as uh, as a domino is dancing is <laughs> yes. actually going to underscore this entire episode. So <laughs> a, a better use. You say jazz music, it's porn music. It's porn music. You're right. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think that like someone's watching us from behind like a Perspex thing as we're recording this. Sure. Um, with, mm. with that music playing. The thing about the score is like, it's, you know, as you guys have said, very generic, but like, I don't understand why they didn't just try to have some sort of musical identity. You can't replicate the Bond theme, but it doesn't feel like they even tried to really do anything. And we talked about um, Casino Royale 67 a while back on the show and say what you will about that movie. It is a very strong musical identity. And I think they should have just taken a swing at this, like hand it to a composer that has an idea and say, hey, come up with something. Mm. And it doesn't feel like they really tried that. It feels like they almost were like, let's put like all the focus on Connery. Let's pull back on the music at all as being an important factor in the movie. So let's just not invite comparisons. So let's just take the easy way out. But they probably should have just tried something. And and they had these examples sitting in front of them in terms of uh, Spy Who Loved Me and Free Rise Only where the official guys were taking weird swings and doing different things. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like there was no, there's no, uh, there was already a precedent, I guess I'm saying that they could have just gone a little harder. And I wonder how, the, how you get there. I wonder if it's just a, is it a bad hire and then you're too far down a road or is it a producer who doesn't understand the importance of music? I wonder how that sort of, how you end up with that because they couldn't have been happy about it. I'm just, I guess it's probably for the better though, that they didn't give into the early eighties trend of just like pumping it full of pop songs, which could have happened which could have aged it even worse. <laughs> um, yeah, but it is frustrating. It's. I think that leads us on uh, quite well to my dislike, which is I understand they had to work within the constraints of Thunderball. That's fine. You've got the lawyers. There's so many like levels the script has to go past and everything has to go past to get signed off for it to have been released. The fact that this film exists is a miracle. Mm. That being said, they could have taken some very big swings on some of these things. And some of them, they do. I think 
yeah, Fatima Blush, I'll go back to that again, is, is a triumph. And there's a lot of weird things they do in this film that work. But there's so many things they don't do. Like, setting up the old man Bond is fine, but then not delivering it is at the end. And not really paying that off at all is, uh, I think, a bit of a misfire. And, and this isn't just, like, plotting stuff as well. But they, for a film that could have maybe distanced itself from the tropes that you couldn't use, it's trying quite hard to emulate them at times. Like, did we need the Thunderpool jetpack? Well, uh, you're talking, of course, about the finale in the, was it the Navy uh, flying thingamajig? Sure. Like, if you're trying to, if they're saying we don't want you to be too much like us, fine. Let's make our own identity. And yeah. the music is a great example of that. We could have had, we could have had this all-time score that they had to pay the rights to use because everyone loved it so much. They could have invented anything as long as they didn't use John Barry's theme. Yeah. But instead, we just get this sweet and and the Lani Hall song. Mm-hmm. I think that's a misfire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm sure you could list a whole bunch of things they could have done like better and differently. Like, uh, did Money Penny have to be an exact copy of Louise Maxwell, more or less? Like, did did Algae have to be basically M with less money? Oh, Q, sorry. Um, yeah, Algernon never worked for me. Even as a kid, I couldn't stand that character. <laughs> I love the line. I, that's why I quoted it in the intro. But like the whole like the nasal inhaler. Right. I didn't understand why. Oh, that goes up my nose and then I sniff it. It also apparently sweeps chimneys. <laughs> it's very <laughs> Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. Um, my guess is like, because you're saying, why did they feel like they had to just have these kind of familiar tropes when they could do something maybe more original in some respects? Um I would guess is they do want business. And so you want to give people at least something to make it a recognizable Bond story. Right. But that's what Connery's doing. Yeah. I mean, it's, you look at it though, like people were like having a fit in like when they did Casino Royale in 2006, that they were not including certain elements. And uh, I just wonder if they wanted that familiarity. Like if you're entering the marketplace with a very expensive film, you want to, I guess, give the audience a little bit of what they want even if you're not quite giving them, you know, the, the music and some of the other Eon tropes. I just think, that, and we, we're going back to Casino Royale 67, as we mentioned before, and in, in terms of the music, say what you want about some of the other weird things in that film. It has a weird visual identity that's definitely its own. Mm-hmm. That whole scene on the, the Berlin Wall will never leave my mind, or the Matahari dance. Yeah. Very striking images. I don't think this film has a, a striking image it leaves in your head, except for Sean Connery in dungarees. Uh, well, <laughs> I'd say Fadma <laughs> Blush's outfits. That those definitely are memorable. That's fair. That's fair. But what about you, Cam? Something you disliked? Um, I think. Well, I mean, I could say like the finale is a real uh, just kind of drags out for me. But like maybe let's focus that through Domino. Because I think Domino's a real problem in this movie. I don't really understand this character very well. And I think she comes across really well in Thunderball, a movie that is not known to be the most, you know, focused of stories. I think uh, I think Domino makes a lot of sense there as played by Claudine Auger. But here, I don't know, like right up front, she's very like lovey-dovey with Largo. And it's like, you know, I just want you kind of stuff. And then he makes creepy, sadistic comments and she looks concerned. But like throughout the story of this movie, I don't understand where she's at at any given time. You know, you have Connery posing him as, as a masseuse in a very creepy sequence and like giving her a massage. And then she's just like smiling afterwards. And it just kind of continues from there to the point where we wind up 
in a very like racist sequence in North Africa where they're like trying to sell her at a slave market. And it's like, this is just a character I don't think they had down, which is weird because the template was already there. So I don't understand how they got so confused with the character. I have to wonder if it's just... I Maybe they were too constrained with this one and they, they couldn't figure out and Kim Basinger just couldn't figure out or didn't get what she wanted from it and didn't connect with the, the work. I don't want to blame Kim's performance. She's gone to be a fantastic actor in her own right. But something's missing, absolutely, in this performance. Something is missing. If you look at Thunderball, like it's a very clear, like she's a kept woman who is slowly learning what's going on with her brother and ultimately is getting revenge on Largo. Whereas here, it just feels very muddy. But like Largo isn't the same here. No. I have a problem with the Largo in this film. Because at least the Largo in Thunderball feels like a snake. He, he he feels devious. He is an enemy from the start. But you don't really... I mean, you know that Largo in this film is a bad guy, but he's just... He's playing it so like... What the, what's the word I sort of... Off kilter was what I wrote down in my notes. Like he's 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 hard to guess. He's kind of like... He, he's making little jokes and stuff. He seems very friendly. He's not actually, you know, being that campy Bond villain that we all expect. Nor do we necessarily want. He hasn't got the eye patch or anything like that. But you can't get a read on him, at least for me anyway. I never really figured out what they were trying to do with that version of Largo. And I think that probably just cascades down to Domino. Hmm. He has a real, like, 80s sociopath energy. Um, but So do you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but, like, you give him, like, cute little moments where they're joking around. And she says, like, what if I left you? And he makes, like, a like a little piano note joke kind of thing. And it, it's like they're making him kind of fun, but and they're making it seem like the two of them have chemistry and then not kind of giving us a real proper evolution of that relationship. I, I suppose it, that's one of the problems is you have when you're comparing these sorts of things is you're comparing it against Thunderball yeah. in a way. But I, don't, I also don't think Largo stands up in his own right even without the comparison in this film. I don't, I don't know where it went wrong necessarily, but it, it really doesn't connect for me. Or, or Domino. I think it's something that was missing in the script. And it's interesting that, you know, Dick Clement and Ian Liff, and they really worked mostly on sort of the earlier sections with like Shrublands and stuff like that. Yeah. They weren't as involved with those two. Yeah. Dick Clement has talked about how he felt really bad that they weren't able to do more with Domino because they could see that Kim Basinger was struggling with the role. But like, just to, to speak to what the other thing you said, Cam, the ending. Yeah. Uh, after the death of Fatima Blush, it really does feel like the film loses a lot of energy. And I, I wonder why that is the case as well because again you know dick clement ian lefrené they were really focused on the first half of this film and i guess a lot of the other bits of the script were sort of lorenzo semple jr's stuff so i wonder what that original script looked like but i i i don't know i i wish i could put my finger on why it loses the energy for me because you've got these wacky moments like bond riding a horse off of a castle into the ocean like the horse hearts have returned here and it's it's great to see but that moment just feels so, ugh. Like it, it just it really pulls you out of the film, and it's just it's so weird. You know, a lot a lot of uh, folks don't give enough credit to uh, what a good editor can do, mm-hmm. and it's not. And you know, people online think editing is like cutting a film down to time, and they don't understand that it's so many more complex choices than that. But but I don't think that there's any denying that the Bond franchise, the official one, lost something when Peter Hunt fucked off and 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 left. Um, and, uh, you know, you look at uh, Daniel Craig's run 
there's a uh, an editor named Stuart Baird who edited Casino Royale and he edited Skyfall and and his absence is sorely felt in all of Craig's other films. I think I think a good editor can get you past sort of a limp plot uh, structure or or a, a draggy stretch of film with some with some creative choices and this there's probably a reason I don't know offhand who edited this film <laughs> and it might be that that there was they just hired some sort of workhorse now watch you're going to google and it's going to be some oscar winner like <laughs> but uh, edited the godfather it was right, uh okay, it was yeah, right? ian crawford who did uh field of dreams monty python and the holy grail where the heart is films like that so hmm all right so maybe it's not his fault but uh you know some some somebody somebody's not always batting a thousand and and i think that the plot being what it is, it's still. I think Thunderball kind of rolls to a stop as well. It it, it might be inherent in the material to some degree, um, but I, yeah, I don't disagree that the energy out of the gate does not bring it home. I mean, what what's your take on the end of the film, Phil? It feels very stage bound mm. to me, and I think that that's maybe part of the problem. Where whereas Thunderball felt like an exciting ending because it was out on the open seas and whatnot and fast motion, but uh, <laughs> the the um, that cave that they're in feels very fake. Yeah, it feels very artificial and cheap. Yeah, and I think that that's probably part of it. I wish I could point to something more specific, uh, but you know, they. Like, I they wish need- I could say. I wish I could say like seeing it on the big screen helped, which I did this year. Yeah, but that even it mm-hmm. actually makes it look worse. Does it? See, seeing that that stage, that that um, that cave set. Yeah, it it looks like. I mean, this is a very British reference that neither of you will get, but it looks directly out of the Crystal Maze, um, which is another like a, a very low budget TV show, mm-hmm. and and actually that made it look better. Mm. Um, which is a real shame. I. I I was watching it today in preparation for this, and I just one of my notes towards the end was, "Did they run out of money?" <laughs> yeah, and I think I really like Bernie Casey as Felix Leiter in this movie. Like mm. he has a lot of energy. I love when he just shows up throwing the ball at Bond. Like that's a fun little moment. But I also don't feel like the movie did a lot with their camaraderie. So maybe if you had like a tighter sense of them as a pair, the finale would be helped because they're side by side through a lot of it. Um, have a little bit more of that '80s buddy cop kind of energy that mm. could have been fun um it's just like a lot of it feels like and, and you can say this about a lot of bond films where the effects start to overwhelm things in the end but here it feels like maybe the worst example of it where it just feels like the pace just kind of sags out and the finale with largo is not particularly exciting and i i still don't understand where domino came from to shoot him at the end but nonetheless um it doesn't feel like it's building to a big moment it kind of goes out with a whimper which makes kind of all the stuff before that a little more frustrating. I think the one thing that could have helped maybe the last half hour or so, you have that scene where Bond is chained up in the vulture room in that old building. (laughs) Those vultures should have been doing something, damn it. I want vulture attacks. Vultures can be scary. I've seen jackass forever. So come on, people. Do something with the vultures. (laughs) I was looking online for someone else to blame uh, for why the cave looked so bad. And I was like, maybe it's the cinematographer. No, he shot the first three Indiana Jones films and the line in winter yeah, and the Italian job. They, 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 you know, but they can cut him off at the knees and not give him the light lighting that he might need or the time he might need to make a set like that look serviceable. 
who knows? I, I think this is like, this has maybe brought us some of the final things to talk about with this film. And it, we spoke about it earlier in the sense of people dismiss it and it could be for the score, it could be for other bits and bobs. It does feel there's, there's an essential thing that is missing from this film. Because if you were to rank this as part of the like 27 official James Bond films, for me, it would be middle of the road, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would it would it be lower for you too, or where, where would you say it falls? You go first, Ken, because I actually did rank these for Thrillist once upon a time and definitely included Never Say Never, and I just wanted to look and see what I actually did rank it as. Okay, um, I guess I would say it's towards the bottom for me. Okay. But as is so often the case with James Bond, even the lesser James Bond movies are still movies I watch over and over again. Sure. So what do you really say? But um, yeah, it's near the bottom for me, but I think I would probably still probably watch this like over say die another day or something it it just feel and phil is just finding his his ranking for us now it does just feel like there is some sort of magic missing Mm -hmm. and i can't put my finger on whether that is the lack of the bond accoutrement you know there's no gun barrel there is no john barry score and when you put those motifs in what like you look at that youtube video that someone made and put those, those things in on the intro it significantly lifts that intro yeah, could that be the magic bullet that brings this film up in everyone's rankings? And it's just more in the discussion. Like when you look on online, you see people talking about Spy Who Loved Me or Goldfinger, or that, all great films. Never, never again is never really coming up. Even when people talk about the bad films, they just don't talk about this film. Yeah, right, because it doesn't count in in their in their estimation. Yeah, and I guess I disagree that sticking a gun barrel in the front actually helps the opening. I don't know. I don't know about that. I I put it at eighteen, by the way, in my rankings for Thrillist. Okay. Yeah, I I don't think I would be far off. Some of the Brosnans came after it. A couple of Roger Moore's came after it. I did put it above Octopussy. Oh, interesting. Which I, I might revisit. I don't know if that's still true. I'm still trying to make sense of Octopussy years later. <laughs> I mean, Octopussy, I'm a big fan of, but um, it also has a similarly uh, visually flat look as Never Seen Ever Again. It was just, uh, you know, a lot of films in the 80s kind of have this look. And mm-hmm. it is interesting because we're talking about, you know, the cinematographer of, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark here, Douglas Slocum. And, you know, one of the one of the greats, you have Irvin Kirshner coming off Empire Strikes Back, I would say the most visually dynamic Star Wars movie in the franchise. It just feels like, for some reason, there was a factor here. There was some sort of wall between what these people we've seen are capable of versus the visuals that wound up on screen. Yeah. And, you know, it's probably true that this was a producer's movie over uh, some sort of, you know, creative vision of anyone involved. And, uh, you know, what what the producer says goes on a set. And, And so we... Without a very candid, uh, you know, commentary track or, or oral history, we we have to only guess it. Like what sort of nonsense these these creatives were dealing with on the regular, um, because McClory wasn't maybe the most seasoned producer in the world, was he? I mean, no, he, he's he's just known as this pest, this ambulance chasing kind of you know <laughs> producer, nipping at the heels of of this franchise that he had his teeth in, um, so you know, given the keys, can McClory even do anything? Like, did he actually produce Thunderball? No, he he had a legal claim on being the producer of Thunderball. So he might have been ill-prepared to produce a movie, frankly. Yeah. By 83. 
It's so it's so weird that I mean, there's definitely one Bond expert in the room, and then Phil is here. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> Clearly, Phil is the expert between. Wow, us. I'm not. Not at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm guessing, and none of us can really can put our finger on what what is that thing that's missing. This ineffable, this, this this thing that's just in the in the ether, like with these Bond films that just make them feel magic. And I, I just feel that there is missing that thing. And I, if you're listening, you want to know, you know what it is and you want to tell us, let us know. But uh, yeah, it's weird that we can't figure it out. Excluding Thunderball, his previous only feature film credit was 1959. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's other producers involved. I don't want to put it all on him, but, but there is evidence here that, that this is produced by people that don't know how to produce movies, generally speaking. I mean, and, and also, as we alluded to earlier, the production of this film was a mess. Yeah. Right. And that, that can't have helped anything, really. And I think if there's one thing as a Bond film you want to get across, it's the travelogue aspects. You know, you go to even a Bond film you don't like, they typically will really have picturesque locations and really give you a real sense of just the vibe of the place. Mm-hmm. And this movie, like, it's very kind of ugly travelogue footage. It doesn't feel like they did a very good job framing that. So you kind of lose an overall energy that's present in a lot of the other Bond films. Yep. Also, there's just a lot more money in those films. I think that just... I wouldn't be surprised if the budget was... Is a budget less than Octopussy? Is it more? No, no. It's. I think it might have been more. I haven't looked up Octopussy's budget, but it wouldn't be shocking at all if it was more. Wow. Well, there you go. Well, I think before we go to the knock list question, that's just any final notes that we have. I have one a question to throw out to everyone. Mm-hmm. We've now seen two Shrublands resorts. Which would you rather stay at? <laughs> These are the kind of uh, hard hitting questions you hear only on Spy Hearts. Um, wow. I'm gonna. I I I would love to uh, have a fist fight with Pat Roach. So I'm going with the Never Say Never Again Shrublands. My answer is very um, base and primal. I'm going to the one with Pat Fearing. Okay. And her mink glove. <laughs> The mink glove treatment is, you know, legendary. And then you can go straight from mink glove therapy onto the rack. Yeah. And why wouldn't you? That's right. <laughs> and then have sex with the rack for 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think I know what Cam's answer is. 10 minutes. <laughs> it was. Wait. I, I, no, I, no, I had questions there, but I'm not going to go into that. Cam. No, no. I was thinking of the section of the movie. I'm like, how long did that sequence play for you, Scott? Were you just watching it on repeat? Uh, I just kept rewinding it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just have a GIF. It's just a GIF. It just replays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I am concerned about any facility where a bedroom is opposite a laboratory full of beakers. So I'm going to take the Thunderball one, which at least seems like geographically it's a little more sound. <laughs> yeah, there's far less enema action there. So you're saving yourself that trouble. <laughs> That's uh, true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and you get to mess around with Guy Dolman and trap him in Schwitzes. Yeah, I can run around trolling Guy Dolman. That seems way more fun than like dealing with someone who's like a genuine homicidal lunatic like Fatima Blush. I see. I, I like to... Roll the dice. My reason for wanting to go to Never Never Again uh, Shrublands was to have a fist fight with Pat Roach, who I know in a real fight would completely destroy me. So uh, clearly I am a masochist. Yeah, another Raiders crossover there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Phil, any final notes from you before we wrap up? Um, not so much. I feel like, <clears throat> you know, with, with uh, you know, 
all the mergers and acquisitions and whatnot that are happening over the last few years, as everyone knows, this is now an MGM or an Amazon owned property. And, and, and they could, in fact, if they wanted to, and you hear people saying this all the time, they could rescore it and they could put a proper gun barrel at the beginning. And I just want to say that I hope they never do that. And I hope that this remains this weird redheaded stepchild of the franchise that, uh, even in, but just by existing shows us what we love about this franchise in, in, in what it is and in what it isn't. It's, it's a, it's an important historical document. You've brought up an important question there as well, Phil. You're right. Both this and Casino Royale 67 are now owned by the MGM and well, Amazon now, I suppose. Do you think we'll ever see those two films in a set with the rest of the Bond films? Mm, I'll say not while Barbara and uh, Michael are alive. Yeah, it's interesting because like even... For example, I would happily buy, you know, a Blu-ray version of Never Say Never and Casino Royale. And there's really not good versions of those out there now that are particularly cheap. So I would love to know if they'd even just put out, you know, whether it's Shout Factory or something, like an edition of Never Say Never Again that was like, you know, had some extras and some bonus stuff to it. Because it's been pretty bare bones stuff. I, I still have the old DVD. I've got the I've got a blue of Never Say Never Again and look I'm not I'm not some technophile but it looks fine to me but you just real made me realize that it, in in keeping or in wanting to keep eon happy is amazon gonna keep these buried that's what i'm wondering that sucks well it's interesting because they this isn't this is not in north america but in england at least um in over the last month or so a time of recording all of the bond films have been on amazon prime mm-hmm. um well, that's what we call it here anyway. but basically you can stream it without having to pay if you have Amazon Prime. Yeah. Um, and that includes Casino Royale 67 and Never Say Never Again. Hmm. All 27 were available. Interesting. I have to go look. Yeah, I mean, they own it, and, and, and those titles come and go off streaming, I think, here as well. I've see, I see it, and then it's gone. Um, but I wonder if in, in the back and forth of Eon and Amazon and trying to get the, you know, keep that relationship happy, if they'll just serve them up to them as some sort of, you know... Uh, tribute here you go barbara here's the negative or something (laughs) do what you want with it and um because i know it's a big uh you know uh bee in her bonnet about connery trolling her dad that way i just i just think like we should be past that now i understand the grudge but i feel like connery is bond and i would love to see it as part of a box set me personally i'd love to see a 4k of this i think the transfer I've got on Blu-ray isn't all that great. I saw it on the big screen in London, and that was just the Blu-ray copy on the big screen. So it wasn't like they uh, 4K'd it. There, there is mm. no 4K version. Even when it was on Amazon Prime, it was still in just HD. Yeah, I'd love to see it in 4K, and uh, you know, just get really get the entire color picture of Fatima Blush's dresses. <laughs> <laughs> I would just hate to see like a future where a movie like this winds up like the original Star Wars versions where they're just kind of relegated to the dustbin. And yes, you know, hardcore fans can track them down on older, you know, physical media, but they just don't really have a lifespan. So hopefully that's not the case, but I, I don't know. They're, they're not enthusiastic about this film already on, that's for sure. Right. Well, we sure are, at least anyway, if that means anything. Cam, do you have any final notes for us? I had a few things. I think there was a real missed opportunity. There's a point where um, they're at the um, the charity video game tournament or whatever you want to yeah. call it. And um, 
uh, Bond asks Largo what the charity is, and he says, orphans, children, of course. That would have been a nice little moment, you know, Connery, you know, Connery's Bond, he was an orphan, right? We could have delved into that a little bit, maybe have a little bit of a connection there, but I don't even know if they were thinking about that sort of thing back then. I, I don't think they were. I think that was probably just a tossed off line, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, also, was that, I wonder if that was in the Thunderball book, and that's why they were allowed to use it. Eh, that feels like something you could just toss off anyway. I don't think it really matters. Fair enough. But um, I had a question for you guys. There's the character of Nicola, um, who is like Connery's sort of assistant. She's like the Martine Beswick character in Thunderball. Um, Paula, I think, was the character's name. Um, and at one point, he finds her drowned in a room. Well, I have a question. What was she drowned in? It was a waterbed, wasn't it? Was that what it was? It looked like a pool table. See, I thought it was like a waterbed, like the one in Diamonds Are Forever. Okay. With the like the 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 swimming the the like fish tank oh. waterbed. Was that a waterbed though in uh, Diamonds Are Forever, or was it just literally a water bed? <laughs> well, I, I took the Mickey out of that film when we covered it, saying it looked like they were sleeping on plastic. Yeah. Um. But I've read since apparently it was a waterbed, but the jury's out in my mind. Okay. Mm. So there's a there's a horror film called Death Game that uh, a guy gets drowned in this. It's an aquarium, but the aquarium is doubling as this coffee table, and it's got like a top on it and stuff. And and I think that's sort of like this leftover sort of '70s furniture aesthetic where you could, you know, uh, double dip on something like that. Where you're like, yes, it's an aquarium, but it's also got this, you know, surface that you can put your drink on it. And I and and I thought it was something like that that she was. Drowned in a, a fish tank slash piece of furniture. Just a, but, it's just never and never again keeping up the tradition of looking after animals. Yes, there it is. <laughs> and just my last little note, I love the moment after the Fatima death where Bond and Felix Leiter go incognito <laughs> with uh, Connery on a bicycle and Felix Leiter shadow boxing behind him. Amazing, amazing. Are they singing like Frere Jacques or something like that? I, I saw they're like whistling a, a tune. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just the idea of like a Bond in like shorts and socks <laughs> on a bicycle <laughs> while he's being chased by uh, by Felix Leiter. I'd like to see that version in Living, uh, no, in License to Kill. It had very like strong uh, Rocky movie vibes. Mm. Uh, paying tribute there to Phil's hometown, Philadelphia there. Hey. Well, I think we've arrived in our destination. It is knock list time we need to figure out whether our martini is still dry or not never say never again is it joining the likes of dr no from russia with love goldfinger you only live twice and thunderball that have made the knock list sean connery's jane bond films of course although diamonds of forever did not phil you're our guest you get the first vote yes or no is it entering the list of the best spy movies ever made the list of the best spy movies ever made. As a guest, I, I'm not sure how expansive this list is, so I don't want to like you know. Well, I mean, yeah. Pull a, there goes the neighborhood move and. Three Days of the Condor is a connection to this film. Lorenzo Temple Jr. That's on here. Um, sure. Um, North by Northwest is on there. Um, the Shersha Ronan uh, film Hannah actually made the list. Born Supremacy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Zero Dark Thirty. How many films are on this list so far? About twenty-five. Bit less than um, that. Okay, we're quite picky. And you've done, and you've done seventy or so. Is that what you're eighty nine? 
Close to 100 now. Close to 100. Well, then I can't in good conscience put this on an esteemed list such as that. I think this is a, a fun movie for Bond fans and it's a serviceable uh, Bond entry and it's got Connery in it, which, you know, grandfathers it into a lot of my own personal lists of stuff, but I don't think it would go on an all-time greatest spy movie list by any stretch. So that's a no from Phil. I think uh, I think we've all sort of set up our answers on this this review already. But uh, Cam, I'll throw to you anyway. Maybe you could surprise us. Yay or nay for the knock list. Nay for me. I mean, uh, Diamonds Are Forever didn't make the list. And I voted against You Only Live Twice. And I would hold those in slightly higher regard, I think, than Never Say Never Again. So for me, when I'm looking at the Conneries that I think are worthy of the inclusion, it's that first four. And this one kind of falls into that little bit of diminishing returns, but it's still interesting because of it being kind of this novelty film. Okay, two no's, and that means my vote means absolutely jack shit. But here it is anyway. Uh, I'm going to go with yes, because it's better than Thunderball, and I I voted Thunderball onto the list. So I'm sticking to my guns, and I'm being true to myself. You voted against Thunderball, didn't you? Yeah, I know. I can't really get away with that one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i voted against thunderball just because i think it's a bit too sleepy for me i think i still think personally this film is an improvement on, over thunderball but i i have a lot of trouble with the underwater sequences you guys know that hmm. it's like the ipcris file all-time great spy film i understand it's just not for me that's entirely fine right but i don't think i could put never and never again on the knock list it's it's one of the ones i would actually reach to if i was just looking for a hangout james bond film i I just love this kind of vibe and i love sean connery as james bond i think he's just the best that has ever played the role uh, except for of course the otter in casino royale 67 so um yeah it's wasn't it a seal <laughs> I, I honestly couldn't tell you the difference between the two animals, unfortunately. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> let, let's go with a seal to make Cam feel better. The seal in Casino Royale. Uh, let's go with the dog. We can agree that it was the dog. Okay. Yeah. Who then went on to play a role in Thunderball. Right. Yeah. Um, same dog. But uh, yeah, it's a no from me. And that means it's three no's. And as such, Never Say Never Again is unfortunately not making the knock list and the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified now before we let you go phil Mm. i have a question for you sir you are our resident expert on james bond you 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 keep saying this this is not me saying this by the way (laughs) oh okay put that on the record you demanded we say this on the episode (laughs) yeah it it was in your proviso in the email like it's on your rider green m ms and i'm an expert on bond I'm a Bond enthusiast. <laughs> uh, we'll go back to your uh, Twitter hand. Aged Bond fan. There it is. Says it all. There it is. Okay. <laughs> now, you're an edit- editor-in-chief at Fangoria. You know, you mm. are. You deal with films a lot. This is where your passion is. Yes. James Bond going into the future now. This is a loaded question. If you don't feel like you want to answer it, that's entirely fine. But what would you like to see happen with the James Bond franchise going forward? Okay, I I know the answer to this already. So it's here's the thing. We all we all came into Bond at a certain age, right? And there's a certain target age where something gets into the jelly of your brain and it stays there. This franchise needs to figure out a way to reconnect with that age group, or it is doomed to extinction. Mm-hmm. Can you find me an eleven year old who understood, much less enjoyed, No Time to Die? I submit that you cannot. Right. So that's a, that's a, we talked about Thunderball and, and, the, and the marketing push. Like Th- Thunderball 
as a, as a movie that is approximately 36 hours long, appealed to the children of its generation through marketing tie-ins, through, through merchandising, through an aspirational kind of and, and, and affordable uh, merch push. If you go to the 007 site today, you will find clothing that costs about $2,000. You, <laughs> you will find a lighter that you can buy for $36,000 American. Um, this movie needs to figure out how to get Spider-Man fans to care about James Bond again. And by Sp- I pick Spider-Man very specifically. It is a multi-generational hero that appeals to all four quadrants. And without it, this is becoming an old man's franchise that uh, has a limited shelf life. And Amazon's going to be sad that they spent all their money on it. We, uh, we mentioned Star Trek earlier. Mm. And I feel like Star Trek's going through a very similar identity crisis right now mm. and trying to find its audience. I feel like it's a lot of the old man's club as well. But I think you're entirely right. I think it needs to figure out a way to connect again. And I don't know necessarily we're the ones that they should be playing to anymore. Right. It should leave us behind, uh, honestly. Um, and I think that like, the top notes of how to do that is to make it accessible to kids again and to make it uh, fun. And, you know, it's it's gotten so serious, and, and I've, I've loved the Craig films, but they've gotten so serious and so dour that when he does have fun in there, it's like we all perk up. Yeah. It's like, oh, God, it's a 30-second moment of, of joy that we can have in this thing. And I think it needs to figure out how to get that energy back for uh, the next generation. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, Casino Royale was drawing a lot from the Bourne franchise as well as, like, Batman Begins. And I'm really curious to see what the next iteration is drawing its inspiration from. I, yeah, I, I don't think we can uh, get any better than that. I don't think we have the answers, but then we don't work for Barbara Broccoli. So. <laughs> Yet. 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 Well, I don't think they will after this. I, I, I'm championing it never, never <laughs> again. I've, I've been excommunicated by Eon and Amazon now. Uh, there you go. But, Phil, I want to thank you for stepping in to join us today. Um, you know, I've... We've been waiting to find the right film to you to come on for, and I thought this was a, a great choice, a, a fun hangout film and, and a good era mm. in my mind, and of course, Connery in the tuxedo for the very last time. Yeah, no, it was fun chatting about it. Thanks for having me. And could you just talk a little bit about what you've got going on with Fangoria at the moment? Uh, what do I have going on with Fangoria? Uh, so this is my fourth year on the magazine. I, I, re- I resurrected it after it was out of print for a couple of years, and uh it's been a weird ride because it's a magazine I read when I was 12 years old and, and now I, I sort of steer the, steer the ship of it. And it's, uh, it's a work in progress, I always say. We, we are lucky to work for bosses, publishers, and own, owners <clears throat> who let us experiment, let us play around. Uh, this week, we dropped a cover of uh, The Weekend, which is a very unexpected sort of move for us in terms of like what we cover. But what he does in his music videos is so makeup effects heavy and, and something that the horror crowd might not have been aware of. So we get to sort of like shine a light on that. Uh, we publish four times a year. You can check out fangory.com for information on how to subscribe. And uh, we also have, you know, daily things going up on that website. And um, it's a, it's a, it's a weirdly my dream gig. And I'm just trying to get them to bring back Starlog now so that we can cover all this other stuff. Please, I used to buy that as a kid. I'd love to have Starlog back. Yep, it's it's uh, part of the deal. Uh, my my bosses own Starlog, and and I've every every month or so, I sort of throw, put a bug in the ear about how they need to resurrect it. So cross your fingers. 
it seems like a great time just too, just given how uh, there's a lot of popular sci-fi properties that could probably work very well in terms of selling you know, a magazine. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's plenty of magazines that I think sort of cover that space already, Total Film and Empire and, and whatnot. But um, I think that internally there's, there's a pitch that sort of justifies Starlog's resurrection as something different that's not the same old, same old that, um, that could really get people excited. And I think, like you guys said, you bought it as a kid. There's, there's a ser- affection for the brand. There's an affection for that logo that I think we should be exploiting. Hmm. I couldn't agree more and, you know, keep us informed because if you need any help with that, Starlog, yeah. Yeah, it means a lot yep. to me, that, that that magazine. So, um, but is there anything else you're working on you know, outside of Fangoria as well? No, I'm finally just having one job and it's great. Uh, just uh, just excited to be working on, uh, on this magazine. Um, I'm still a panelist uh, off and on at James Bond and Friends, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a, a great group of folks. And um, that's it. That's what I'm up to. We've had many of them on the show already. You're joining the team again. Lovely people. Um, and where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you, Phil? Oh, don't. <laughs> oh, just, just don't. <laughs> I, I don't need to be found online. Um, but, you know, follow Fangoria on all your socials. There's all kinds of great stuff happening on Instagram and on Twitter and on Fango.com. Yeah, they'll find you by the pool uh, drinking a cocktail with Kim Bassinger. Yes. Perfect. Well, Phil, thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. That was our discussion on Never Say Never Again. I feel full of free radicals. I did not expunge them, but because of the heat wave we're currently in the UK, I did lose four pounds. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, but Cam, I think before we talk about what we're doing next week, I'm just going to mention again that later this week, after this episode comes out, we're speaking to two of the writers from this film, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, all about their involvement with Never Never Again, as well as some other spy films they've worked on and some other of their fantastic British comedies like Alveda St. Pet, which I'm a massive fan of. I've actually been binging that recently. And then next week, the following week that this episode is released, we are sitting down for an extended discussion with Barbara Carrera, Miss Fatima Blush herself. She doesn't do interviews much anymore, but she found the time for us and we are forever in her debt. It's a fantastic channel. I definitely recommend you guys stick around for that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a, uh, we've already recorded the interview and it's a lot of fun. We had a great time doing it, so we can't wait for you to hear it. Now, as we're missing a week next week, because we'll be having our discussion with Barbara Carrera, what are we doing the following week after that, Cam? Yeah, so if you want to get a jump start on your research, we are going to be tackling the 355, starring Jessica Chastain, Lapita Nyong'o, Diane Kruger, Fan Bingbing, and Penelope Cruz. Yeah, this is probably our most recent film we've ever tackled on the show. We're going to start doing some more recent ones uh, over the next few months, actually, trying to work them in. But um, I never caught this one in cinemas in the end. I really kind of wish I had. So I'm I'm really looking forward to checking it out. And I hope you guys are too. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us, of course, on Friday for our Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet interview next week with Barbara Carrera. And the following week, we'll be tackling the three five five now if you liked what you heard on the show please consider leaving us a five star review wherever you get your podcasts and do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners it tastes sweet like money 